I just wanted to say, look, we are, we feel the same way you, you do. We, you know, American born Muslims, you know, there are millions of us and we are just as upset, if not more upset about what's happened. We are absolutely unequivocally condemn what happened. We are in shock. We are in mourning. We grieve. We are upset. We want vengeance. We are just like you. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with sports writer Rani Gizerli, whose essays have appeared in outlets like ESPN, Grantland, The New York Times, and This American Life. Rani is also a longtime baseball analyst. He co-founded the Baseball Prospectus, which evaluates the game from a sabermetrics perspective. Now, if that sounds familiar even to non-baseball fans, it's because Sabermetrics was made famous in a 2011 Brad Pitt movie called Moneyball. In fact, Ranny may be best known for developing the Sabermetric concept of pitcher abuse points, which, with its careful attention to pitch count, literally changed the way baseball is managed at the professional level going back to the early 2000s. In addition to baseball analytics and sports writing, Ranny has, since 9-11, almost accidentally become a kind of religious commentator in sports fan circles since he's a practicing Muslim raised by Syrian-American immigrants in Wichita, the same city where I grew up. And something about the immigrant part of Ranny's story has always appealed to me since in some ways it reminds me of my own family history. As it happens, my grandfather, a man named Herbert Rolf, was the son of German-American immigrants, and during World War II, he was the target of a fair amount of abuse at the hands of people who considered themselves to be real Americans. Even in his 80s, just before he died, my grandfather was still taken aback that people had judged him not for who he was, a patriotic and hardworking American-born farmer, but for the fact that his mother spoke in the accent of a country and culture that people didn't trust. All these years later, it's easy to forget the suspicion and scorn that was once heaped upon German-Americans, or even worse, Japanese-Americans, even as a fresh wave of suspicion and scorn has targeted the likes of Syrian-Americans and Muslim immigrants. So, ever since 9-11, Rani Gizerli has, as a journalist and essayist, been a very patient and rational explainer of Muslim goodwill and normalcy in America, and we spend a good part of our conversation talking about just that. We also talk about Rani's great-grandfather, who in 1860 was one of a group of Muslims who risked their own lives to save Christians during a religious riot in Damascus. It's a fascinating story, and Rani was kind enough to let me reprint an essay he wrote about that incident. You can find it linked in my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Rani and I don't just talk about religion, of course. Since baseball spring training begins later this week, he gives his prognostications for the 2018 season. And our conversation actually starts with an extended riff on the Kansas City Royals, since, like me, Ranny is a diehard, lifelong fan of the team. I won't share our Royals discussion in its entirety, since, seriously, we spend like 20 minutes talking about Royals minutia. Uh, but I do start the episode with uh, the final three or so minutes of that conversation, right around the time we're talking about one of the greatest games in Royals history, a dramatic come-from-behind extra innings victory against the Oakland A's in the 2014 wildcard game. Ranny wrote a fantastic article about that for Grantland, and I had just asked him about that experience. So let's listen in. You must have stayed up until dawn to write that Grantland article after the wildcard game. Uh, I was up, I believe I put my head down on the pillow at around 6.20 in the morning. Um, I, cause, I mean, after the game, I didn't know what to do. And then I was with a, a friend who had a, uh, I was sitting in the stands, but I had a press pass and he started from reminding me, he had a press pass as well. And he's like, let's go, let's go to the, uh, to the clubhouse. 
I, you know, and I remember, you know, so we we ran back uh, into, onto the concourse and made our way down to where the Royals Clubhouse is. We got there in time. They opened the doors, and I remember the first thing the first thing that happened was this overpowering smell of alcohol. And for a moment, I was just deeply confused. I was like, why do I smell alcohol? And then, of course, and then it hit me. I'm like, oh my, of course, they're celebrating with champagne. I had never had a team do that before. Right. Um, and you, you walk in, and it was, it was a mosh pit scene. It was amazing. You know, they had plastic wrap everywhere in the clubhouse. Guys were, you know, the players were spraying champagne everywhere. You know, people in the media who were close to the team, you know, guys who cover them and know the players, uh, you know, well were, you know, sort of the target of a lot of champagne being sprayed around, but all of us who were there were basically, you know, hit, hit by champagne to some, on some level. Um, and, uh, you I got to soak that in. Then I had, you know, finally got back to the hotel by probably two o'clock before I actually sat down. I'm like, Oh my God, I have to write about this game now. Um, and was able to, you know, like I said, stayed up, stayed up till literally dawn. Um, but I knew the whole uh, middle of the night, as tired as I was, I'm like, if I don't, if I don't get my thoughts down now on this night, the greatest night I've ever had as a baseball fan, I will always regret it. You know, that was, that was what kept me going. And, you know, every now and then I'll go back and read, read that article just to, to experience it from my own perspective and what it was like that night, the despair that we had, the, the improbability of them coming back. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing night. And actually, I go back to your article sometimes. There was also an oral history of the night that the Kansas City Star did a year later mm-hmm. that I go back to. Oh, and excellent. I actually drove three hours home that night and downloaded the game from iTunes. And so every once in a while, I'll... I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> watch it on my computer screen it's just this it's this this uh, i don't know if it's sad or inspiring but uh uh every once in a while i'll, I'll watch that game again let's let's rewind a little it's bit still on and, my right yeah let's rewind a little bit and um and talk about how you became a royals fan um because I, I know from your writing you grew up in wichita i'm curious to know where in wichita you mm-hmm. i know that you went to a racket club you played dungeons and dragons you played soccer and, and baseball um how did that end up? Tell, tell me a little bit about, about your upbringing in Wichita and how did you become a Royals fan? Yeah. So yeah. So let's let's go back to the life story here. So my um, let's start with my parents. My parents uh, are uh, immigrants to this country. They they are both from uh, from Damascus, Syria, uh, and my dad uh, went to medical school in Syria. And when he finished his medical school, like most of his classmates, came to America to get his specialized training as a resident in, in residency. Uh, it was uh, in Michigan, in, uh, in the Detroit area. And that's where I was born. Uh, and I was born about a week before my dad finished his training in, uh, as a cardiology uh, fellow. And uh, yeah, I was a week old, and they packed me up and my two older sisters and drove down to Wichita, where my dad had a job waiting for him. Uh, the, their original plan was that they would stay for a couple of years. My dad would make as much money as he could to save up some money so he could go back to Syria, maybe open up his own medical clinic and, and, and you know, move back to his homeland. And uh, my parents quickly realized uh, that that was probably not a realistic option as much as they wanted to go, you know, as much as they missed their homeland, as their, their, uh, their family, uh, that my, you know, they went and visited a couple of years later and realized that, um, Syria, since they had left in 1970, was uh, was under the control of the uh, the Assad family, and had basically become a kind of toxic mixture mixture of, of socialism and fascism, uh, 
um, where the government controlled everything, um, and the, you know there was you know shortages of of basic foodstuffs. And I remember my dad years later had to pay a smuggler to get my mom uh, to get his mom, my grandmother, a, a new refrigerator from Lebanon. And it was just it was it was a it was a, a third world country in, in, in very much the pejorative sense. Uh, and so my parents made the decision to settle, you know, that, that Wichita was their home, that they were American and they got their citizenship. And, you know, by the time of my earliest memories in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, Wichita, Wichita was home and that's where I grew up. And I never, you know, I knew my parents were immigrants, but it never, you know, I, I never felt like they were treated in any way as any, as any less than a full American, a second class citizen. I mean, my dad was a doctor and, uh, it's, it's, that is a great leveling uh, force in America. Um, you know, doctors in, in general, I mean, such a huge percentage of, of physicians in America are uh, immigrants. And it is, it is an incredible opportunity for immigrants to, you know, it, it's, it's rare in human history where you have immigrants who can come to a new country and immediately be as successful as what has happened in America, where the, you know, a physician shortage in the 60s caused a rule change that basically gave doctors from other countries favored status. And it wasn't, I'm sure the intention at all, but it, it, it changed sort of the fabric of immigration to America. Now you have these very well-educated uh, immigrants who come into America and work very hard and become successful and become ingrained in American society. Um, and that was sort of my upbringing, not thinking anything unusual of that. Um, you know, I appreciate it a lot more now, just my knowledge of not just sort of, how the rest of the world operates, but just even American history in general. Um, my parents were blessed to come to America at the right time and had every opportunity open to them. And, you know, I grew up as a regular middle-class kid in, in Wichita, Kansas, went to, you know, public, public school and, and got a, a very good education, lived there full time for about a decade. But then um, I was nine years old and my dad got an opportunity to uh, to take a job actually in Saudi Arabia of all places to to run a cardiac center that was being opened up there, um, and my parents looked at this as like sort of a perfect opportunity to sort of have the best of both worlds to have um, uh, you know to be close to family and give their their kids sort of the experience of living in the Arab world, um, but at the same time you know went to went to an American uh, an American school in in Saudi Arabia and still got American education. Um, and it, that was a, certainly a very profound experience for me because by this point, I'm being nine years old, I was, I already felt not just American, but sort of, I, I feel like my identity was already locked at that point. Like there was, I, I understood America's place in the world. I took great pride in the fact that we were, you know, we were the greatest country in the world. And this is, the, the summer we moved literally was the summer of the 84 Olympics, right? Which the greatest summer Olympics of all time because the Soviet bloc boycotted and America basically won every, won every uh, event. Yeah, um, I remember that. But I was tre tremendously, you know, proud of being an American, not, not in a overt way, but it was kind of like, almost like you speak for granted. Of course, America is the greatest country in the world, right? That was sort of my, my thinking, not really even contemplating the fact that it was, you know, that 15 years earlier, my you know parents had never set foot in this country. Um, so you so lived fully American. 
you 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 weren't uh, a Syrian. I mean, did you speak Arabic when you were in Saudi? Not at all. Okay, I did not. No, I did not. And that, I mean, it just it sounds evil now, but you you know, we, so you moved to Saudi Arabia and. It, having already sort of established what America, not just what America is, but sort of American ideals and, and um, you know, the rule of law, you know, the people actually obey traffic lights. And, you know, if you are wrong, you can take someone to court, that sort of thing. You know, to then move to Saudi Arabia um, and, you know, still living within sort of, you know, in a, in a, among an American expatriate community, but to see this, you know, Arab country, um, that you know, where the, the the birthplace of uh, of our religion and uh, purports to sort of speak the the most authentic version of of Islam, um, but also see the in, inherent contradictions in that, and that the country was corrupt in, in many ways and um, you know backwards. Um, it actually strengthened my American identity. We would come home uh, to Wichita every summer. We still had our home in Wichita, and I mean, I, as far as I was concerned, I was in purgatory for nine months out of the year, and then would finally come home. But, you know, the, the seven years I lived there, I, I never once thought the home was anywhere other than which I was I was just marking time. Um, and so in retrospect, I mean, I'm glad I had that opportunity. It was very it was a very educational and, and I think um, it helped forge who I am today. I have no regrets about living there, but it was not it was not something I enjoyed at all at the time um, because it was, it was kind of alien to what America is. Um, and what I what I tell people is, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm deeply um, appreciative of the fact that I lived there because it's, it is where I learned about my religious uh, identity. But I, I tell people I didn't actually become religious until after I left and came back to America for college because I, I saw enough, um, you know, it, obviously the, the Saudi Arabian version of Islam is in the news a lot ever since 9-11. And, um, you know, the fact that somebody of the, uh, the, the hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia and, and all the attention given to what, what they call the Wahhabi strain of Islam, a very Puritan, conservative interpretation of the religion. Um, and you, you saw that all around you there, but I also saw the hypocrisy of the people who would enforce these rules um, if you were not Saudi. Um, but what was going on, what, this, what some of the people... The, the native Saudis were doing behind closed doors. There was a lot of hypocrisy. I would see Saudis in Cairo or Beirut, you know, who were sort of there to party. You know, they were sort of the, they were uh-huh. like they were yeah, like the, the the Texans of the Arab world. You know, uh, the, the the oil rich people who would come and yep. and get drunk yep, absolutely away from home. Yep. Pract- okay, that's actually because I was kind of going on about the hypocrisy of it. So actually, that that's kind of perfect. So we can pick up from there if you want. Yeah, well, actually, we can just integrate this right into the podcast and my listeners. I'm talking to to, to Randy by phone, and it got dropped, but it, it's just sort of an interesting transition. Uh, and it actually ties into a question that I have for you about your relationship with Syria, because that is one of my favorite places to visit in that part of the world for specific reasons that I can tell you about in a second. But I'm curious to know, one, your relationship with this country that your parents were from, but you weren't. Mm-hmm. And, and as a quick aside, uh, was your family Sunni or another branch of, of is, Islamic faith? Uh, we're, we're, I would you know, consider us Sunni, um, like you know, the majority of Muslims globally, although in Syria, as you know, it's, there's a, a large number of, there's a lot of religious diversity, a lot of smaller sects, including the, the Alawi uh, uh, sect, which is where the ruling family, um, that, that's their religious background um so but you know the majority of of people in syria are Sunni muslims 
my first experience with Syria, I was um, six years old, the first time we visited for a summer. And I always had a very conflicted view of the, of the country because, you know, I had, uh, you know, grandmothers and lots of uncles and aunts and like two dozen cousins who lived in the country. And when I visited, uh, and again, three years later, the second time, you know, wonderful time visiting with cousins and, and all this family. I, we had no, outside of my parents, my sisters and my brother, I really had no family anywhere in America. So to, to go to this country and suddenly you have family everywhere, that was a very uh, uplifting uh, experience. But even by the very first time when I was six years old, I could see not just that, okay, yeah, we the, the electricity only works, you know, 14 hours a day and um, we don't actually have a shower. You you pour water into a sink and you, you pour the water over yourself in the tub. I mean, okay, so that's, that's fine. But also, you know, you couldn't, talk freely that people were always sort of whispering and saying you know we can't talk about the government we can't talk about this subject or that that for my very first experiences to just and again i'm, I'm even at, at six i understood you know what america what america meant um it just it seemed like why are we doing this why do we have to behave this way and knowing that i come from a country where we don't have to do that and that's and not only do we not have to do that, but we take pride in the fact that we have freedom of speech, we have the First Amendment, et cetera. Um, and so to see a country where the, literally those very basic rights are not present, I, you know, I sort of maybe I, I became a bit of a um, a believer in American exceptionalism or something. But I, 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 from that moment on, I really looked at my parents' homeland as you know this is their country, but it's not my country. And I, I never, I never learned Arabic, um, which I, I certainly is one of one of the great regrets in my life. Just in terms of, I, you know, could never, I never had a really meaningful conversation with my grandmothers, for instance. Um, uh, you know, I wish I'd learned the, the the language, but at the same time, it was like there was nothing. Uh, this place is a, it's a place to visit, but there was no part of my identity that was present in Syria. I thought the country was beautiful. I mean, you've been there. The people are were incredibly welcoming and, and hospitable. And I've told over the years, I, I've told anyone, uh, you know, American friends who are traveling, you know, backpacking through Europe or traveling to the Middle East, um, I say, you have to go to Syria. You have to go to Damascus. You have to go see, you know, there are the ruins of Palmyra and, you know, there's the ancient forts in Aleppo. You've got to go see. And I've never had anybody say anything other than I can't believe that this is such a hidden jewel and thank you so much for telling me to go because this is such an amazing country and nobody knows about it. Actually, I just discovered another article you wrote uh, recently about uh, a man named Abd al-Qadr, um, okay. who uh, was an associate of your great-grandfather. Um, and so can you tell a little bit about who he was? I think it's just an interesting story. It, uh, it, it is an incredibly interesting story because and I'd heard, you know, my dad telling me stories of my, this is, you know, my great, great, I guess, great, great grandfather um, and how he came, you know, my, my, my family, my last name, Jazerli, which is um, a corruption of Al Jazari, which actually literally means Algeria. Um, hmm. And how my great, great grandfather came, you know, came to Damascus from Algeria and, you know, that his, um, that he was the ward of um, this you know, great leader who could have been king of Damascus if he wanted to be. There was a lot of legend, a lot of 
um, I, I thought hyperbole to what he was saying. Um, but um, I, I learned, well, I later learned that the history of this guy named Abdel Qadr, um, and there's a great biography of him um, that uh, called, uh, I believe, uh, Commander of the Faithful, um, which uh, I read maybe 10 years ago now. And the story basically is he was a um, uh, a member of a, of a very uh, religious uh, family of sheikhs in Algeria, you know, living in, in sort of the, the, the desert for hundreds of years. And this is in 1830, the French invaded Algeria. And by, you know, to condense the story, he was in his mid-20s and was basically appointed the leader of his, of his tribe, of his people. Um, he was, a, you know, up until that point, was groomed to be just a, a religious scholar. You have this incredibly learned, uh, deeply religious man who's now leading armies into battle and uh, successfully sort of held the French off for something like 15 years before um, finally um, having being, being forced to surrender. The, the French, you know, the advantage in technology and firepower is too much to overcome, but was so you know, was, was so valiant in battle that I mean his name uh, was you know known throughout the Western world. And in fact, this this coming at a time where um, there was a lot of resentment in England and America towards this French imperialism um, in Algeria, he actually became almost like a, a sort of folk hero uh, in America. And there is an actual city in Iowa, of all places, that was named for him. Al-Qaeda, Iowa is actually named for this guy uh, because he was so well known. And when even um, when he uh, when he surrendered and was imprisoned by the French in France for about five to six years, was so sort of dignified and uh, and valued at, in defeat that he even the French people grew to love him. I, I described it as almost like the Pope coming to visit America. People would make would sort of make pilgrimages to to his prison to visit with this guy in France. Uh, and quickly, popular support basically came to releasing him, letting him, letting him go in, into exile rather than keeping him in prison. And so he ended up in, in Damascus with uh, his, his extended family, which includes my great great grandfather, um, who we believe is his nephew. It's, uh, we don't have a, a great family tree, but I believe Abdul Qadir might be my great 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 uncle. Um, and as, as amazing as that story is, the really amazing part is that he happened to be in Damascus. This is 10 years later, now 1860, um, when a pogrom basically uh, broke out. Um, very sort of confusing as to exactly who was behind it, but basically the Christians of Damascus, because as you know, Syria, even today, very multi-religious. And, uh, you know, Christians made up probably a third, a quarter to a third of the city. Um, Christians, uh, that, that um, and the, the Turks were in charge uh, of, the Ottoman Empire was in charge of Damascus at this time. They sort of um, watched as uh, a mob uh, of people of various faiths came together and started massacring Christians um, by the hundreds. Um, at this point, Abdul Qadir is in a man in his fifties and is, you know, in sort of retirement, but is extremely well respected. Has, uh, you know, his his people, he has his followers, hundreds of followers with him. He gets wind of what's happening and basically goes out into the city. Finds, you know, go, goes to the Christian quarter, rounds up every Christian he can get his hands on, and takes the, takes them back to his to his palace, to his villa, uh, and defends them, you know, sword in hand, his his men behind him with guns, basically daring the mob to come after them and threatening to kill anyone who would 
who would, uh, you know, innocent, uh, would, would, would slaughter an innocent person. Um, and was once the sort of riots died down, was credited with saving something like 10,000 people's lives, including basically the entire diplomatic corps of, like, of Europe, was uh, awarded the French uh, Legion of Honor, which is, is just incomprehensible. I, I describe it as, imagine, um, you know, the leader of, of the Viet Cong being awarded like the Congressional Medal of Honor like 15 years after the Vietnam War. I mean, this is French, France's greatest enemy being awarded their highest uh, uh, honor. Uh, he received gifts from um, U.S., uh, from President Buchanan, uh, in the United States, um, just this incredible story of, of heroism and the fact that he, you know, did this based on his Islamic principles that, you know, say that the, the taking of an innocent life is as if, as if you killed all of humanity. And he used his faith as basically his rationale for saving these people of a different faith in the, in the face of an armed mob, um, is it was extremely inspiring and yeah. it's just this amazing story yeah it's an interesting narrative mix of sort of like che guevara meets oscar schindler meets you know mother <laughs> Teresa or something because he was he was basically defending christians against a muslim mob based right. on muslim conviction you know based on his very religious and I think conviction it's, it's an incredibly resonant story in our time um and i mean to me he represents you know, the, the best of what my, my faith teaches us. Um, and at the same time, he had to use that in order to defend against people who twisted the faith uh, for their own ends. Um, and I, I think that has, is an incredibly important uh, narrative in, to, in today's time. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, prou- I'm proud to be descended from a, from a man who saw his faith in that way. And, and that has sort of always been my, um, my intention, you know, since... I moved back from Saudi Arabia to, to America and set out to sort of create an American Muslim narrative, having seen what extremism looks like, not violent extremism, but I saw what a very Puritan, very conservative interpretation of the faith looked like in Saudi Arabia and wanted no part of that and felt like that was a misinterpretation of, uh, of, of our faith um, to want to to go back to what the faith is really about, which is serving uh, your fellow man and, uh, you know, putting the needs of others ahead of you. Um, yeah. Well, and, and focusing on your own self-improvement above the, you know, before, before you criticize the, the, the faith of others. I mean, you, you, you mentioned um, how you would travel to Egypt or wherever, and you would see people from Saudi Arabia that come and they, they would, they would be partying and, it was as if, you know, in their own country, they would force other people to obey these religious rules. But then the minute they leave, they would um, they would go out and, uh, and violate every one of them. And, you know, when you're more focused on how other people are practicing their faith and how you're practicing it yourself, um, you've, you've gone you've gone down the wrong path. Yeah, no, that's that's a really resonant thought that I think can apply to to all religions. Uh, and, and I wonder sometimes how. If it wasn't for that Wahhabi strain of Islam, which is not that old, it only goes back to like the 1800s or maybe the 1700s. Um, you know, if you know, if if um, the religion or at least its perception would have evolved in a different direction. But I actually want you to to touch a little bit more on that because you sort of became a voice for a certain kind of baseball loving all American 
uh, Muslim after 9-11, you wrote, a, you wrote an article that I'll link to in the show notes um, that became very widely read. I heard somewhere that you got like 6,000 emails from it or something. Mm-hmm. And, and so talk, talk a little bit about navigating one, uh, you know, uh, the more extreme and negative versions of your own faith that you've seen overseas, but then also the really ugly um, and willful misunderstandings of your faith that happen stateside. Another one of my favorite pieces of yours was a This American Life piece uh, about a friend of yours who was hired to, to work for Obama and just very, very cynically was framed as this, I, I think you can probably uh, frame this better than me, but like some sort of con- unindicted co-conspirator. But in, if you look at the actual... Um, details of the case, he was just being a Muslim. He was being a, he was being a Muslim in the way that Christians are being Christian and Jews are being Jews and, and associating with people of his faith. Um, so yeah, at, at the risk of asking a very vague question, could you talk a little bit about um, this situation where, where suddenly you've ended up as a baseball analyst, suddenly, suddenly interpreting Muslim life for your fellow Americans? Yeah, I mean, it was it certainly, it was... I, I became the accidental spokesman, and um, it was accidental in, in you know the worst possible way, which is that 9/11 happened. And uh, at this point, um, I had been writing about baseball. We had been we, we founded Baseball Prospectus uh, when I was a first year medical student in 1996. Um, and speaking of accidents, you know, I'm also the accidental sports writer. It was never really my goal. I you know went to medical school. Um, wanted to be a doctor like my father, and but I always loved baseball and had a passion for it and happened to be in the right place at the right time when the internet was sort of taking off and met some guys online and we all decided it was time to write a, a book about baseball that, because there were no good baseball books out there and we started writing an annual book. And so by the time 9-11 rolls around in 2001, we had written five or six books and uh, we uh, were writing fairly you know regular uh, contributing columns fairly regularly to ESPN, uh, to ESPN's website. Um, and I was, you know, thoroughly enjoying that part of my life. Uh, at this point, I was uh, a resident at this point, but still writing about baseball when I could. And the 9-11 happens, and it's, it, it's sort of, you know, the, the shock took a while to wear off. Um, you know, it happened on a Tuesday, and I was basically in a daze through, you know, through the work week. But then sort of the weekend rolls around, and I realized that, you know, all – all this stuff is being said about Muslims and very little of it is good. And I understand, you know, the anger and certainly just justified anger at what's happened. But this notion that these people somehow in any way represented my religion um, was just, you know, an insane idea, but it, it just sort of hit me at that point that there are, there's almost no one who has a, a public podium who, you know, has the podium in the medium in, in the media that I do who is Muslim. And it seemed like a crazy idea. I write about sports, but I actually emailed my editor at ESPN and said, look, I know this is kind of crazy. Um, we, you know, we are a sports website and you know, this is sort of out of, uh, out of the ordinary, but I feel like I need to write something about nine 11 from my perspective as a Muslim, from the perspective of sports um, and to his immense credit, um, David Schoenfeld, who's still a writer, um, still, still works for ESPN, um, pitched, pitched it to his bosses, and they said, yeah, go ahead. Um, and I wrote this article, didn't really know what I wanted to say, except I just wanted to say, look, we are 
we feel the same way you, you do. We, you know, American-born Muslims, you know, there are millions of us, and we are just as upset, if not more upset, about what's happened. We are absolutely, unequivocally condemn what happened. We are in shock. We are in mourning. We grieve. We are upset. We want vengeance. We are just like you. Um, and, you know, I wrote it. It was, um, you know, it was published. I was, I think, at the office, you know, seeing, seeing patients when it went up, and I, I, I get home uh, that day, and I, like you said, I had thousands of emails. I mean, it was um, I, it was, <laughs> it was the first time I really understood what viral meant. I was getting emails from around the world, um, and almost all of it positive. I mean, that was it was such a deeply rewarding to be to know that most people, just, just as uh, you know, I think it's, it was good for maybe Americans to know that most Muslims condemned this. It was also very reassuring for me as a Muslim to know that most Muslim most Americans still had my back. Not all. I mean, I get some nasty emails, but you, you can write about just about anything. It, you know, you can write about unicorns and you'll get nasty emails. So, um, but the vast majority of it was positive. And, and, you know, I had the opportunity to go, I did some radio um, interviews and uh, it was sort of then I realized, you know, I've got this opportunity that very few people of my faith in America have at this moment. I should, when, when the opportunity arises, I need to take advantage of that. And so while I've certainly focused, you know, most of my writing is on sports, on baseball, and what I'm passionate about, what I am what I think I'm, I've got a very educated uh, and, and, you know, opinions and, and very popular writing, when the opportunity arises, I will uh, take those opportunities to write about whatever is going on um, from my perspective as a Muslim, whether it's about politics, uh, whether it is about, um, you know, uh, what, what happened in Syria. Uh, you know, I wrote an article for The Ringer uh, earlier this year about uh, about the Syrian crisis. Um, but uh, I feel like just having just having someone open about their faith who's Muslim, but in a very sort of I'm, I'm not I'm Muslim, but I am still a not just I'm American, I'm American like you, like just like you may be Christian or Jewish, but that really has very little to do with what kind of an American you are. Uh, you know, I would argue that the fact that I'm Muslim, while it's very important to, to me from a faith perspective, from the perspective of who I am as an American, I, I think it has, you know, not, I'm not, it's not that relevant. I mean, I, you know, I like sports, obviously, you know, I like pop culture. Um, there, just knowing that there are people of my faith who live the way that I do, I feel like that is probably the strongest argument I can make on behalf of my religion is that just, just simply the way I live my life, which is, I, you know, there's this perception that Muslims are somehow different, that you see them on TV and they all, you know, live in a foreign country and speak with a weird accent and they're always angry about something. And you never just see Muslims living life like everyone else and going to restaurants and joking and watching sports uh, and, you know, arguing over Star Wars or whatever. Um, when in fact, that is what me and all of my Muslim friends do on a very regular basis. And I think just knowing that people like us exist, um, taking away that, um, that sort of veil of, uh, you know, uncertainty is who are these people? You know, what are they like? Just knowing that your your next door neighbor, if they happen to be Muslim, they're just as American as you, and 
their you know their faith is as important to them as your faith might be to you but that just as your faith doesn't determine who you are as an american so it is with them i think that's the most powerful statement i can make um, and so while i i try not to uh, you know, I, I certainly don't push my my beliefs on anyone else i i'm very vocal about the fact that i am muslim because i feel like just letting people know especially people who find me first for my my writing about sports just knowing that this guy that you read his sport you know his sports commentary and might agree you might disagree but you at least understand he's got an educated take just knowing that i'm muslim blows away people's minds i mean there are people who just you know if you've never met a muslim before and you know many americans have never met a muslim I want to be that Muslim that you be. I want, you know, there's so, so much evidence that people who say they, they know a Muslim um, have a much more positive view of Muslims uh, in America and Muslims in general than people who don't. And so if you don't know a Muslim, I, I want to be helped to, to, to be that person. I want to help to give you that familiarity that might give you a more positive impression of well, my people and my faith. Well, it's interesting. Your your Twitter profile uh, at some point said, uh, "Proud to be a Royals fan, proud to be a Muslim," uh, which which almost sort of felt like your um, your 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 mission statement in a certain sense. And and it's it's interesting that a lot of this conversation it's a very American, it's an old American conversation. I was doing some research uh, from the 1920s, and there were actually Klan pamphlets going around that were accusing the Knights of Columbus, basically these Catholics with uh, Southern European accents of uh, stockpiling guns. And, and, and these Klan pamphlets said that every time a Catholic boy was born, they buried a rifle underneath the local church so that they could eventually rise up against the American government. And, and I mean, it just seems laughable now, but it's, it's also... Everything old is new again. I mean, this is, you know, what we are dealing with as a Muslim community is just like you said, like just what... Uh, Jews in America had in the early 1900s what Catholics had in you know the 1800s and like you're saying even into the into the 1920s. So on, from a, looking at taking a long view, you know I feel like this is sort of an American rite of passage for any uh, immigrant, any minority community that comes here. Um, but unfortunately, we can't afford to take the long you know the long view in the short term. And mm. so I think it's important to have you know uh, outspoken voices to you know nicely but 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 proudly sort of stake our claim to this country and to this country the you know, fabric of this country and to the future of this country and and to do so and make it clear we are not a threat to the american way of life on the contrary we came here seeking an american way of life and we are here to contribute to that american way of life and i think you know i'd like to think that for much if not most of the country i think that we are uh, accept it. But there's always going to be the, the holdouts and, and people who look at us with suspicion. And, um, you know, in some ways, maybe those forces are ascendant at the moment. But um, that does, you know, we can, I cannot give in to despair. Um, I, I feel like, um, you know, it will be easier for my kids than it was for me. And it, it was certainly easier for me than it was for my parents. Um, and the day will come where the idea of, of a Muslim somehow being a threat to this nation just because of the religion will be as laughable as it would be to suggest that of a Catholic today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, actually, an interesting thing that you wrote, I forget where you wrote it. You said Islam is the world's greatest religion. You were writing this as a Muslim, but it has the world's worst followers. I'm, I'm curious. To... I think I was quoting Winston Churchill. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Okay. That, yeah. that, that's interesting. Well, um, 
maybe a, a, to to put a ribbon on this or to to put to put a bow on this um what do you think is still not understood about just quotidian Muslim life in America? What do you think are the biggest misperceptions and, and just sort of the biggest blind spots uh, for the average person who just, it, it doesn't occur to them and the media, I mean, we still sort of have a man bites dog, if it bleeds, it leads media diet. Right. Um, and so what, what quotidian things about Muslim life in America um, do we need to be reminded of? I mean, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is just this idea that, that Muslims and Islam are, are like a monolith, that you know, we're all like one, you know, we all secretly talk to each other and, and believe the exact same things and we're somehow, um, you know, working together in some way and, and not appreciating the fact that just like every other religious tradition, you have tremendous var- variation and tremendous variety within the Muslim community. I mean, uh, you know, a, a third of, I believe, something like one third of Muslims in America are African American. Um, I don't think the average person would would appreciate that. And I'm not I'm not referring to the Nation of Islam, which is, you know, not which I, I'd say most mainstream Muslim scholars would say is not within the fold of the religion, but is a very has a very small group of followers. Um, you know, there are uh, well over a million African American adherents of Sunni Islam in America. You know, you think about, you know, entertainers and, and uh, you know, comedians, you know, Dave Chappelle and Lupe Fiasco. These guys are Muslim. Hmm. And, you know, at the same time, they're, you know, white Muslims like myself, you know, Arab, fair-skinned Arabs who pass as white and European, Bosnian Muslims. You have, you know, Muslims from South Asia, you know, India and Pakistan, or, you know, brown collar. You have Indonesian Muslims. You have, you know, it's it, there's this image of like, you know, the, the angry sort of, you know, dark-skinned um, Muslim, which aside from the fact that it's, you know, a kind of a, it, it's a, it's a bigoted viewpoint, but it also misses the sheer variety there are, um, both eth- ethnically, but in terms of practice. I mean, you have Muslims who are very deeply religious, and you have Muslims who are deeply secular, and you have Muslims um, who, you know, pray five times a day, and you have Muslims who, you know, show up the mosque twice a year for, for, for Eid prayer, and that's it. And um, we, you know, we are all part of the same religion, but, you know, we, we hardly agree upon, just like every religious tradition, you know, people of uh, Muslims don't always agree on what the religion means with each other. Um, so they're certainly not going to be, um, you know, similar in, in, in other ways. And I think just recognizing that um, there is this variety of Muslims, uh, just like there are, you know, varieties of Christians and Jews and, and uh, atheists and people of other faiths, I think is helpful because, you know, the problem is every time a Muslim does anything, we are all sort of held to account for it on some level. And there's this, you know, myth, oh, why don't, why aren't Muslims denouncing, you know, when there's a terrorist attack? When, of course, you know, every Muslim organization in America has denounced it within 12 hours of it happening or whatever, but it's not reported in the news. But this idea that, you know, some, that, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Sarnay of, brothers or whatever somehow that not not only this idea that they somehow represent um the the typical muslim but that i that i share anything in common with them in terms of my interpretation interpretation of the religion is is just it's ridiculous it's not just it's offensive it's just absurd it's like you know if if, do you if you are you call yourself a christian and you you would never in a million years say you say you have anything in common with you know David Koresh or whoever. I mean, it's, you know, they're, every religious tradition is going to have people who just 
are out on the fringe and you can't you can't hold the, a, a mainstream person responsible not just for their beliefs but for not stopping them when the average person didn't even know that David Koresh existed until things happened in in, uh, in Waco or whatever. Um, so you know there are somewhere between four and seven million Muslims in America. Um, you take any group of four to seven million. You know there are probably four to seven million people in Chicago or New York City, and you're, some of them are going to be criminals, and some of them are going to be excellent people. Um, I think just remembering that, just like any other religion, there's variety um, among the American Muslim community. I think it would be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess unfor- for for better or for worse, for people like you, you. I mean, does it get wearying to to um, constantly have to uh, uh, announce? Like, I as a, as a person raised Christian, I don't have to denounce every mass shooting carried out by a Christian guy. Does it get wearying for you to, I think you, you've tweeted quite recently about this, um, or is it just, does it feel like sort of your um, your duty as a, sort of a, a, an American who's trying to communicate uh, to to a parts of America who don't really understand the, the right. Muslim side? It, it's a little wearying, uh, I think for me in particular, because I sort of take it, you know, taking that upon myself that I do have this opportunity to educate people about my faith. So anytime something happens, I do feel obligated myself to, um, to speak up. Um, certainly not, that's not the case for everyone. Um, so I, you know, I, I just consider sort of part of, part of, part of the job. Um, but there is, what's wearing is sort of anytime that you, you heard the initial reports of some sort of violent action. So there's been a shooting, there's been, uh, a bombing, there's been anything that every time that happens until, you know, there's this constant um, tension until we get more details of what happened, who's responsible, um, you know, was there a Muslim involved? That feeling um, is, it can be, can be draining. I mean, you know, I, I, the, the Las Vegas shooting, you know, I mean, mm. obviously now there's, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no connection to, to Islam, thankfully, but, um, you know, that even the ones where there isn't, you know, there's that, un- that time of uncertainty where you don't know, you know, and and you're constantly having to, to pray and please let this not be a Muslim involved. Um, it doesn't change my faith. It doesn't affect my faith because I know anybody doing this doesn't understand their faith um, one bit. But it's, you know, this idea of what, how is this going to affect the rest of it? How is this going to affect, you know, Islam in America and around the world? based on the actions of one idiot you know the power that one extremist idiot has um is is kind of frightening um not just in terms of what they can do in terms of killing people but in terms of how they can change the perception of an entire religion um so that's the part that you know because unfortunately in america today we don't typically go more than a few weeks without some sort of violent action happening some sort of mass shooting um and while it's most of those have nothing to do with Islam. There's always you're you're always on that knife edge, waiting for news as to who who was responsible this time. If it's a white person, then guess what? It it you know it, it's off the news soon enough. But if it's a Muslim, it doesn't it doesn't uh, you know it, it doesn't just disappear into the ether. So um, that part is gets kind of t- tiring after all these years. I'd imagine I, uh, there's Don DeLillo in his book White Noise talks about, or is it maybe it's Mao too? Just that the, basically the the act of terrorism is sort of this P- PR act. It's this it's um, 
it's the act of being noticed, which is the only language Americans understand. And so I think that there's there's something very insidious about these moments. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on this too much, and I do want to respect your time. So to wrap things up a little bit, I don't, I'm not sure when this uh, episode will air, but any prognostications on 2018 baseball from a Royals or holistic perspective? Oh, from from Royals perspective, I would pre- I would predict pain. I think that um, it's been it's been a great run, um, and I think it's over. And I think they're going to have to to start from the beginning again, and I'm fine with that. Um, but uh, I would just say from from a grand perspective. You know, I think we, we've for we're in kind of this in the era of of stagnation, in that you've got a bunch of teams that are sort of building for the future, uh, be, in part because you have a number of teams that have sort of hit their peak right now. We saw this, you know, with the Astros and, and the Dodgers, the Indians all winning a hundred games um, in 2017. Uh, the Cubs obviously won hundred games the year before and won their division again. You have. The, the, the half a dozen teams that are sort of at their peak and every other team sort of looked at them and said, you know what, we can't compete right now. Let's build for the future. And so I think we're going to see a lot of the same teams. You know, I think the Dodgers are very much favored to win again. The Cubs will probably win the, in the National League Central. I think the Nationals, they have one more year with Bryce Harper. I think they're still favored in the National League East. I think the Astros are very much favored in the in the AL West. And I think the Indians are very much favored in the in the AL Central. Um, now the East will be the Red Sox and the Yankees like it. It is most years, I think. Um, it's sort of it's a cliche to just say, who, you know, the team that won last year will win again this year. But if you had done that a year ago, uh, you would have gotten pretty much every division right. I mean, you know, almost every uh, division winner in 2016 repeated again last year. Um, I think the Astros were the one exception, and they were very unlucky in 2016. So I think of the six division winners this past year, I would say probably five of them will repeat. Um, I think it'll get much more interesting the year after that. But I think we're we're looking at another year of the same teams and, and dominant teams. And I think that, I mean, I, I, I thought 2017, even though there wasn't a lot of drama with the pennant races, I think it was actually a very good season because you had great teams for a change. You had 200-win teams in the World Series. And it's fun to sort of some, uh, see these super teams go up against each other. But I think we'll be back to a more uh, an era of parity again in a year or two. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including a link to Rani's essay about the Muslims who banded together to save Christians in Damascus in 1860, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman helps me with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.